Hey everyone, it's Andrea. Hey, just wanted to let you know that here is this great episode today around food insecurity. And um, if you're a pet lover, if you have uh, animals at your home like I do, uh, you're going to really resonate with uh, what it means to have that pet connection and how it relates to uh, food insecurity in a lot of the families um, that we work with. So uh, take a second and uh, sit back and enjoy my discussion with uh, Dr. Mary Beth Rockus. Hey everyone, my name is Andrea Richardson and welcome to the Fresh Perspectives in Social Work podcast. Today's topic is an interesting one, so let me set the stage here. In 2021, 89% of the U.S. households were food secure throughout the year. The remaining 11% of households were food insecure at least sometime during the year, including 4% or 5.1 million households that had very low food security, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Based on a 2021 State of uh, Senior Hunger Report by Feeding America, findings from a survey revealed that 5.5 million seniors, or 1 in 14, were food insecure in 2021. Food insecurity affects every person in America at one point in their lives. Like many issues in welfare, um, it requires a collaborative approach to address the causes, but first we really have to understand them. In 2016, the CDC created One Welfare, similar to One Health, which was established in 2009 and recognizes that the health of people is connected to the health of animals and the environment. One Welfare looks at issues from a wider national, global, and holistic perspective. The concept refers to not only one, um, not only animal welfare, but includes human welfare and societal mental health, as well as environmental conservation. It uses One Health concepts and, and ideas and applies them to welfare and environmental issues. Our guest today is Dr. Mary Rockus. Um, Mary Beth is how I know her uh, from the University of Pittsburgh, and she is a, awarded a Fulbright Core Award to do research and teach at the University of Porto School of Psychological Sciences. And in 2022, or 2022, yeah, 2022, she was selected as the Fulbright Award to India Asham Don Bosco University. In 2019, Mary Beth uh, completed a study titled Animal Ownership in Low-Income Households. Is there a relationship between human and animal food and food security? Dr. Rakas uh, is currently on editorial boards for the Journal of Intergenerational Relationships, the Journal of Child and Adolescent Social Work and Residential Treatment of Children and Youth, Residential Treatment of Children and Youth, and she's the co-editor for the Social Work and Mental Health. She has also co-edited four special journal issues, one on interventions in Portugal for children and two focused on residential care and child safety and out-of-home care and one in animal-human interactions and social work practice for children and youth. I've always found her work to be very interesting and thought-provoking, and I know you will too, so welcome. Welcome, Mary Beth. Thanks, Andrea. Thanks for the introduction. And it's really great to be able to talk about this with your with your people. Yeah, yeah. We, we have a, a good audience of folks that are, you know, involved in social work practice. Some work with children, some work across the spectrum. Um, and so I think where this kind of really hits a lot of different um 
you know, areas of, of communities. Um, I thought this was a, just such a great, uh, a great topic. And, you know, as a, as a, uh, an animal lover myself, I thought it was really an interesting um, kind of thought provoking way of kind of looking at um, food uh, security um, in, in communities today. So to, to kind of kick us off, tell us, uh, could you tell us a little bit more about, um, you know, the concepts of like One Health or One Welfare? Because when you had mentioned it to me when we were kind of prepping for our time here today, I was like, oh, I hadn't heard of that. But that really resonates into like how people experience their community in, in, um, in, in today's, uh, today's world. Well, I'm a lot more familiar with the One Welfare framework than One Health. Uh, one Health tends to be a bit more uh, public health focused. Mm -hmm. uh, one One Welfare actually has come out of the uh, veterinary world, which I find really interesting that it was actually veterinarians and veterinary science that identified these intersections between how well humans do and how well non-humans do. So I think at its very simplest, what One Welfare is about is that um, we don't exist in a vacuum in this world, in the, on this earth, that uh, animals and humans exist in the same ecological system, whether it's an urban area or, or rural or uh, I mean, it really is really hard to find unpopulated places in the world, either by humans or non-human animals, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And that one, what affects one will impact the other. So there are really obvious examples of, you know, one welfare and things that humans can do that not only improves um, animal life, but actually will improve human life as well. So, for example, like a very obvious example is COVID. COVID-19 coronaviruses were seen in mink farming, right? Okay. Uh, we don't have a lot of mink farms here in the <laughs> Northeast, but, you know, if you go to Wisconsin and, and those areas, there's a lot of, and just a lot of mink farming in the Midwest and in the West. And COVID is seen among minks and with bad animal practices, overcrowding, poor, you know, just poor animal management, then uh, minks get it. And it doesn't, these are incredibly smart viruses. It doesn't take it long for the virus to mutate so that it can make the jump from non-human animal to human. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, and thus we have a world, you know, we have a pandemic. So that is, you know, one way of saying like if we don't do good animal husbandry practices then actually it's just not to make the minks happy um you know this isn't about anti-fur it's really about mm -hmm. bad animal practices actually end up causing zoonoses diseases and disease then makes the jump to humans and mm -hmm. this has been seen in almost every pandemic uh you know pandemic and that's mm -hmm. why this sort of came out of veterinary science veterinarians and global health researchers were like hey you know our bad practices as humans and working with animals are causing these diseases and these diseases are then you know making the jump across species mm -hmm. but another less obvious example is something like um domestic violence and intimate partner violence, we know that that's really tied to 
um, animal abuse as well and actually is often an early sign mm -hmm. so that when families are in violent situations, the animals are also in violent situations mm -hmm. and in fact may, and then of course the presence of animals may deter people from leaving a violent home, negatively impacting of course the uh, usually it's, um, you know, a, a mother and children. So that's one of those areas like the animals getting abused, the humans are getting abused, but the presence of the animal and no place to shelter the animal may deter people from leaving. So mm -hmm. we can see there's all these. So that's just another example. And then the one that I focused on was this idea of food security. Um, when humans are uh, having problems having enough food in the house, having enough food to last, having um, sufficient quantities as well as healthy food, does that, and they have animals in the home, are they both suffering um, from, you know, poor mm -hmm. food or inadequate food or is, you know, one part of the diet getting fed and not the other? So. Mm -hmm. The food piece, there's so many, if you look at the one, and I encourage people to read up on One Welfare because it has this great umbrella model, which includes mm -hmm. like the zoonoses I talked about and intimate partner violence, but it also includes a lot of other areas where it overlaps. But I just chose to focus on food because I have been working, volunteering in food pantries and hearing stories from clients. And that kind of, that's what sort of got me on this sort of research and practice journey. Yeah. So uh, that that was it's funny that you just said that because I was just going to say like what what kind of brought you to kind of begin to dive into that a little bit more because I know you're you're um you you've done a lot of work around just like animal um animal care and and um that's a big passion of yours um but then also you know at the food pantries like what are some things that that you were kind of seeing or hearing that might kind of resonate with um folks that are kind of working in human services that would kind of uh you know resonate with what they're seeing in the field yeah, you know, my area of research um, historically has been child welfare, but mm -hmm. you can't do child welfare work and work with families and children without having animals involved in that mix. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So that's when it first started to um, sort of become aware and then working with transition age youth when they talk about how important animals are to them or how much they miss their animals when they're in care. So that's got me started thinking about it. Um, and asking, you know, more questions about it if I was doing practice work when I was doing it. But in terms of research, I actually became interested in this topic because I delivered um, as a volunteer for Animal Friends, which is a animal uh, and community outreach shelter in Western Pennsylvania. They deliver food to 35 food pantries in like the Western Pennsylvania area with the idea that when people come to shop for themselves and pick up food, they can pick up pet food. And I also volunteer in, in some of those pantries. And one day I was working with an older woman who said, and I mentioned that we had, uh, we had pet food and she said, oh, thank you so much. She said, my cat is always hungry and I've been feeding her hot dogs. And so it occurred to me that this was not, you know, an unusual circumstance. There were probably many people 
feeding human food that they got from the food pantries or elsewhere to their animals if they weren't able to if they weren't able to purchase food. So I did a little survey, you know, just because I could, you know, thanks to Pitt, I do have some resources with all of the uh, chow wagon affiliated food pantries and asked volunteers about their thoughts. And consistently across all of them, they said, oh, we know that when we run out of pet food, they're using human food to feed their animals, right? So that led me to think, well, does that mean then they're, the humans are more food problematic because they're giving their food to their animals. And so we were able to, thanks to um, a nice bequest from a former alumni of the School of Social Work, we were able to um, do a, a smaller, a, a small study where we looked at 30 food pantries, 15 of whom had um, pet food and 15 food pantries where there was no pet food. And we surveyed about 400 people across those food pantries. It was just a convenience survey, you know, sample. Yeah. And then we interviewed about 15 people sort of trying to target groups we know are historically food insecure, which are older adults, um, Actually, people uh, before they reach social, social security age who are unemployed, the disabled, people with uh, working mothers with children, and young single working adults. So we kind of tried to target and talk in depth to more people. Interestingly enough, what we found is that, I mean, you know, my, my thought was, well, if you have a pet and you don't have enough pet food, you're feeding your human food to your pet. So you're going to report that you're not very food secure. But in fact, what we found was having a pet made people more food secure. I mean, they were still kind of lower than the the what sort of the, the federal government sets as a, you know, like sort of a food secure level, but having a pet was actually a prompt. And thankfully from our interviews, we were able to tease out, it's because a pet compels people to take care of themselves, particularly if they're older and to get food. Mm -hmm. And so uh, particularly for older adults, the presence of a pet in the home gives purpose it is a reminder to eat. It is a reminder to cook food, to have food in the house, and to get food for their pet. Mm. So they'll go to the pantry. And then when they're there, of course, they're going to get food for themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For younger families, there were very conscious decisions made if they were have, you know, like single parents with children, women, to have a pet, then they were foregoing a lot of activities like going on vacations or having cable or et cetera, because, you know, the children wanted a dog. So sacrifices were made in order to have that animal. So what I guess what I found, um, which kind of is countervailing to a lot of stereotypes, is that um, low income people take excellent care of their dogs They're excellent in cats They're excellent, excellent stewards of their animals. They and if push comes to shove, if they if they don't have pet food, they will share their food with their with their animals. But having a pet is um, creates kind of a 
again, through this one welfare, kind of means that they're taking care of their welfare. So they're going to have food in the house. Mm -hmm. And the most important thing when we controlled for other factors was that having pet food in a pet food pantry, in a food pantry, uh, makes people overall more food secure, regardless of age, race, uh, race and disability. So in other words, uh, for, for people who use food pantries, and that is a distressing number of people, um, because food stamps are, and even with the new debt limit, they certainly are going to be impacted. Food stamps, food pantries are not emergency um, sources anymore. They are part of people's regular sh like shopping routine. Mm -hmm. So having, a, having pet food there means that overall people um, have greater food security. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of a win-win for the animals and for the humans. Animals stay in the home with the people they love and the people who love them. People, while not totally food secure, at least, you know, have better food security. Um, and so, you know, it's, a, it's kind of a win. I, from my point of view, I mean, there's some pretty good evidence that having a pet really improves cardiovascular health, particularly mm -hmm. a dog with walking. But there are other benefits as well, as I mentioned, particularly for older adults. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I, you know, in kind of preparation for today and, and just, um, you know, just some uh, reading I was doing, you know, a, a lot of like the interdisciplinary fields kind of talk about, you know, the benefits of having um, a pet, you know, in your home, whether it's, you know, like you said, physical health or mental health, um, you know, there, there are these um, companions that are important to sort of our own overall well-being um and and so it, it makes sense that you know uh having food sources for our you know our, our animals um at a food pantry makes a, a lot of sense but i hadn't heard of that in other places um is that like a common practice do you find um you know in other in other cities well, uh, here in Western Pennsylvania, we have, again, uh, Chow Wagon and Chow Wagon uh, Partners, uh, which is through Animal Friends, they partner with the, um, all of the food pantries through the Greater Pittsburgh Community Food Bank. But mm -hmm. it's separate from the food bank. The food bank really doesn't want to mix up the message of human food with the animal food because they're afraid of the backlash. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, and I'll be frank with you, when one of my articles was like talked about in a local newspaper i got a f i got some pushback from people like those people shouldn't have animals anyway right mm -hmm. um and so they like to keep the human stuff separate from pet food and right. I, under I understand they don't want to mix their message up but the way they've the, but the way they've gotten around that is they partner with an animal welfare organization and then they get the food out there and then the food the food comes in through donations anything that's left over from the shelter goes to the community um petcos giant eagles a lot of corporate donors will give us stuff that's left over getting close to expiration we bring it into the warehouse, we sort it, and then, you know, the volunteers and the and the community outreach team put it together and volunteers then ferry it out to the different food pantries. Like today I just dropped off, I don't know, a couple hundred pounds at our food pantry here in Oakland. Mm -hmm. That's one model. 
a more common model that I've seen um, in other cities is uh, where there is just just a pet food pantry at a not-for-profit shelter or a municipal shelter. Okay. So ones that have that are kind of contracted with the city. So yeah. Chicago Paws, for example, they have uh, um, just a specific. They have a, a pet food pantry here in Western Pennsylvania. The Humane Animal um, HAR Humane Animal Rescue has what's called Ellie's Pet Food Pantry. I volunteer there. So every tomorrow is our pet distribution day. So people, we have it out in a trailer. People drive up they're kind of on a list we know how many animals they have and if they you know it's about being spayed we want to make sure people have their animals checked and have or neutered and spayed and then so they count on that food i mean they're regulars every month we know who they are they come and they pick up food yeah that model is a bit more common than the hybrid working in the food pantry model mm -hmm. you know i do think in some ways it there's deeper community outreach if you're putting pet food in just your community food pantries. Um, but that requires more work, right? Like, you know, you have to have volunteers, you have to have enough staff and people who are willing to sort and catalog and then, you know, pack it up and get it out, right? So mm -hmm. that takes a bigger volunteer base. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we're seeing on the animal welfare side a lot more uh, interest in community outreach, getting food to families for their pets. Um, you mean the United States Humane Association has a program called Pets for Life, where they really focus on this idea that you know of animal wellness and human wellness. So. I'm seeing, quite frankly, more of a move from the animal side than I am from the uh, medical and social work community. Um, we're a bit, I think, a little bit late to sort of jump on this um, and understanding the value of keeping people and their animals together. I'm not sure why that is, but I would encourage anyone who's listening to this podcast to do a few simple things in their practice. First, ask about the presence of animals in the home. That's the simplest thing you can do. Um, and when you're doing plans of care or you're doing ecosystem models or whatever, if there are animals, find out if they're really considered part of the family and who they're attached to. Mm -hmm. That's really critical. And that doesn't matter if you're doing hospital social work, do that. If you're working in the community, do it. If you're working in a senior center, if you're working in a child welfare. Those are really simple things to ask. Um, and I would say primarily, they will give you a window into talking to people. People yeah. love talking about their animals. They will tell you stuff after you bonded with them and with their animals and in a way that they probably wouldn't ask you if you hadn't asked. Yes. Yeah. So it's to both of everyone's benefits to kind of, I mean, my daughter's a nurse. She has a um, an ID tag thing, you know, that allows her to, and, and it's a picture of a cat and that, that making a goofy face. And mm -hmm. she said that, you know, opens up more conversations with people than anything, right? Because um, people are saying, oh, you have a cat badge. And then, mm -hmm. you know, that gives you some entree. So mm -hmm. asking about animals is really important because there are social supports for people, both mm -hmm. adults and children. And 
once people, once you open that door a bit to ask and even ask a few simple questions, then people will start to let their guard down a little bit. And you may get, you might be able to engage with them a little bit faster. You can get your foot in the door. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, just that kind of engagement strategy might some might be that that bridge yes. um, where people might be able to also connect with you in saying, oh, you have a pet, too. Right. OK, you're you're kind of like my people versus, yes. you know, someone yes. who doesn't care and, and yes. um, doesn't yes. doesn't understand um, what's going on. So that that makes that makes complete sense. But those are two simple things that you can do, even if you don't do anything about the information about the pets in the family in your plan, at least you've asked and you've created a window, an engagement window um, mm -hmm. with your clients. Mm -hmm. Now, that information you get about the pets can be very useful. So, you know, depending on where you're working, I've had a lot of older adults who put off having medical procedures done because they have no one to care for their pets. Mm. So trying to find, you know, so that is that, you know, so delaying, um, you know, surgery or delaying it or a medical procedure due to a pet is actually pretty common. Um, also, people may continue to live in places they can't afford or, um, you know, or put off housing because they have the animals and housing uh, with the animals. Housing is bad right now, but housing with the animals is even harder. Um, a lot of landlords charge extra for pets. Um, and sometimes, you know, even with an, if you have an emotional support animal, you can get, you can, uh, under the ADA, you can get a waiver, but a lot of landlords can give you some flack about that. Um, mm -hmm. So finding, you know, it gives you a picture if you're working with children and they've been removed from the home and they've left a pet. That's really helpful information to share with foster parents and shelter workers. Um, I would also really, if there are any child welfare workers listening out there, please don't open the door and let cats go out of the house once, you know, you've removed children and a family from a situation. I know I can, I spent a lot of time teaching child welfare workers and they, I had a really good student that uh, I've, you know, that I mentored, he said, but that's not my job. And I was like, you know what? You know, those children are your job. And if those children know that their cat was just left outdoors, then that is not a good thing for them. They've lost their family. They don't want to lose their pets. Mm -hmm. So in a way, it, yes, it's something extra, but it's actually integral to the job. I really, really encourage child welfare workers and their departments to form coalitions with mm -hmm. community rescue groups and shelters mm -hmm. because they're overwhelmed too. I, I volunteer for, for two community rescues and then two shelters and we're mm -hmm. overwhelmed. But if we work with you, we can, you know, like even if it's an emergency, if we have a relationship, then we can, you know, get that cat in. So, like, right now, I'm, I'm working to her home two nine-month-old cats whose older adult has to move out of her home, okay. and she can't bring her cats with her. So, because mm -hmm. I have, they call it the cat mafia, because I have 
<laughs> but you know, because I have a relationship with the shelter, you know, like yeah. once I get all of their papers and stuff, I can at least, you know, try to get them in there because it, you know, it again, she doesn't want, she, she has to leave, but she's not, you know, she refuses to leave these cats behind. And then, you know, and then if she's evicted, she's 70 years old, you know, with the broken back. I mean, that's a really bad situation. So right. we have to make sure we can, she won't leave without making sure these cats are taken care of. Mm -hmm. So that's, I guess that's sort of what I'm saying is don't assume that someone else will take care of it. If people can think about how this relates to people holistically mm -hmm. um, and be a little preventative, like with their agencies forming some, you know, forming a relationship with, a shelter in the region um and there are municipal shelters ones that kind of work with animal control uh and are humane you know animal shelters and there's also nonprofits. and then there's a whole bunch of community groups that that do you know like small rescue and foster care right right and it sounds like it wouldn't be you know if you're just kind of thinking about it, like a lot of a lot of uh, human service agencies do work with their food pantry. They do a lot of like interagency work and kind of mm -hmm. community partnership that way. Yeah. And so to kind of also incorporate, um, you know, the animal groups as well, yes. wouldn't yes. be too much of a shift. It's just right. a little bit extra. Um, and it's a, little, you know, it's a little bit of a reach. I agree. Yeah. But having a relationship, knowing who they are, yeah. um, that's, you know, that really helps. I mean, you know, so that they can say, hey, I had this feeling at five, they really need dog food. And right. then the agency can say like, oh, yeah, we can, you know, we have extra dog food to have them swing by or yeah. have your caseworker come by. Right, yeah. right. I think the other idea around, you know, like when you're, if you have to remove someone from their home, um, being able to almost put, putting that, you know, that pet um, on their plan, right, yes. to say, okay, yeah. you know, um, you know, the, the dog is going to go here, or this is how we're going to do this. And it's just kind of there, I think, you know, it, it can really, um, I would, I would imagine that it could be a, a, a little bit of a security thing for, you know, for a child or for a family member yes. who may have yes. to, um, you know, be removed from their home yes. to know that their dog or cat is here or there taken care of um, and not, you know, left to sort of fend for themselves. Um, yes. And I'm sure that from just a sheer mental health standpoint, you know, that would uh, not cause a additional trauma um, to to those involved. Absolutely. It's it's really, mm -hmm. again, if you're working particularly with older adults, um, yeah. we created an aging in place guide here at Pitt. The Hartford Aging Students helped me create it. It's a little old. It was created a around the time of COVID. But I'm happy to share that link with people because the mm -hmm. appendix has some things. So it has power of attorney. I encourage older adults to talk to family members or friends or neighbors to give them power of attorney if they need for the animal. It's for the animal. And then I have a list of things that you put together for a go bag mm -hmm. so that if you have to leave in an ambulance and your mm -hmm. neighbor comes to get the dog, yeah. everything the dog needs is like listed there in the bag. And That's then also neat. there's a card you can also put in your wallet or your phone that says, there's an animal at home. Right. Um, 
So all of these, they're, they're little, they're little touch things, but they, they can make a difference in making people feel more, you know, if you're working with particularly, again, I'm talking about older adults, yeah. um, it, to make them feel a little less, a little less, um, um, make them less anxious about this. I, I do have an, a couple older women that I work with that I um, I have the power of attorney for their animals. So if they mm. have to go into the hospital, I'm allowed to make decisions for those those animals mm. and make sure that you know if I you know that I could get them into foster or into mm. a shelter. Mm. So. You know, those are, again, healthcare workers don't have to do that, but there are people, when you're doing a, like a social map of people's lives and supports, mm -hmm. and you're looking for supporters, um, keeping the pets in mind as, a, you know, like people who can be, um, who, who may need to be taken care of by that circle yeah. is, is, you know, I think it's really important for the well-being of your client. I, I agree. I agree. Well, I want to thank uh, Dr. Rockers, Mary Beth, because I know her, uh, for lending her time, her passion, and her expertise on this topic. As you may have guessed, food insecurity and um, human and animal welfare are intertwined. Um, we learned that it requires a collaborative approach um, to fully address the issues facing families um, and people in, their, in the animals that they care for. Um, but we have researchers like Dr. Rockus uh, who focus on these complex issues, look at solutions, um, and, and, and help communities do remarkable things. Um, for innovative ways for using food pantries to reconsidering how we support entire family units uh, animals included. Um, solutions are out there but requires communities um, and agencies to look at the implementation a little bit differently. We will have all of the links of the resources that Dr. Rockus had mentioned today um, in the description of our podcast so that you can go ahead and um, click on those links and access those resources as well as um, include uh, Mary Beth's uh, contact information in case anyone had any uh, other questions or follow-up. Yeah, I'm really happy to talk to anyone who's interested in this. I would say that, you know, we've always treated the human lane and the animal lane as separate, but if nothing else, this pandemic has shown us that those lines are not solid yellow lines. Um, they're dotted lines and that I think humans and animals have to get into each other's lanes. Um, I think we do, and that means the the agencies who work with humans and animals, I'm absolutely seeing on the animal welfare side, a true desire to collaborate, provide resources and help. So mm -hmm. I'm really encouraging people on the human side to be receptive to that um, and, and get in that lane for a little bit. Uh, mm -hmm. You don't have to be an animal lover. It doesn't matter how you feel about animals, but mm -hmm. what really matters is how your clients, your families feel about their animals. So please well contact said. me. Yeah, so contact me. I'm, I could, I, I'm very happy to send you any resources that we have from our programs here in Western Pennsylvania or, or, or answer your questions. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank right. you so much. Take care. All right. Bye, Andrea.